Sometimes you just need a quick overview of the news. Other times you need a deeper understanding of what's going on. The Rundown Podcast has all of that, and it's Chicago-based, so you know what's up in your neighborhood and across town. Listen to The Rundown wherever you get your podcasts. This is Esther Yunji Kang in for Sasha Ann Simons, and you're listening to The Reset Podcast. Ten million Americans hold anti-Semitic views, and those who do are more likely to condone political violence— and more likely to believe anti-democratic conspiracy theories. That's one of the key takeaways from a new national poll from the anti-hate group, the Anti-Defamation League, and the Chicago Project on Security and Threats out of the University of Chicago. We wanted to know more about the results of the survey and how they connect to the Israel-Hamas war, the 2024 election, and more. So we reached out to ADL Midwest Regional Director David Goldenberg, we also talked to UChicago political science professor Robert Pape. He's director of the Chicago Project on Security and Threats. And we started that conversation asking Professor Pape what prompted this survey in the first place. Well, uh, about a year ago, um, I was in touch with the leaders at the ADL, and we started to see some overlaps. We started to see that in the last several years, there's evidence of rising anti-Semitism and also rising support for political violence. Well, there's a question. Are those linked? So we began a project in January. It's a uh, many-month project uh, to find out. And we had no idea that when the report was going to come out, as it has just come out now, that it would speak so directly to some of the big puzzles that many people have had just in the last few weeks. Of the many surprises that we've seen with the Hamas attack, uh, one of the biggest surprises is the rise not just of support for Palestinian causes in the United States, but really quite vicious anti-Semitism linked with that support. Our report gives us insight into that. Yeah, we'll get into the results here in a little bit. But this survey was conducted between March 30th and May 5th. Can you walk us through the methodology, you know, how many people were polled? Uh, what were some of the key questions that you asked? Yes. So um, this is uh, the gold standard of polls. Um, so many of your listeners will be used to seeing polls of, say, registered voters, 500 people or so forth. Um, just to put it in number terms, that's like a few thousand dollars. Think of this as the $100,000 poll. <laughs> so it's um, 8,000 people who are randomly drawn from themselves a matched panel of tens of thousands of people who represent the United States adult population of 260 million people on dozens and dozens of demographic, geographic, political, social variables. So this is um, the highest standard that we could ever have in a poll. And with 8,000, it has a margin of error of about one and a half percent, which is very tiny, as some of your listeners will know when they see poll errors of, say, five percent, which then almost are meaningless. This is really quite, this is the best that we could have done. And that's one of the reasons it was so valuable for the University of Chicago Project on Security and Threats and the Anti-Defamation League to partner, because these are two major institutions. And together, we were able to come up with a major um, the, the support for this major study. 
David, let's go to you. We know that in recent years, there's been a big uptick in anti-Semitic rhetoric, threats, and attacks in the U.S. It's still a little shocking to hear that 10 million Americans harbor anti-Semitic views. What did you make of that number? It's an astonishing number, right? But it's also one that, uh, unfortunately, when we look at the number of incidents, you know, incidents take one person, right? So when we put out our annual report, which we've been doing since the late 1970s, it takes one person to show up on that incident, one person to act to uh, commit an act of vandalism or harassment or an assault, for example. But when you start looking at attitudes, you start talking about hearts and minds. And so we've been seeing a steady uptick in the number of anti-Semitic incidents, particularly since about 2015, 2016. Um, what we've always had a concern of is at some point those attitudes, hearts and minds, were going to catch up to the number of incidents. And so when we look at a state like Illinois, for example, where when we go back to 2016, we've seen a more than 400% increase in anti-Semitic incidents just in the state of Illinois. Think about what that means for attitudes and what's driving that increase. Professor, um, I, I do want to go back to the questions that were asked here. What were some questions that were uh, that you you had in the poll there? Um, so we are looking at support for political violence on both the right and the left. This is not a one-sided report, and we're not only looking at general support for political violence, but we're looking at support for political violence for very specific causes to see how that correlates with individuals' attitudes that are highly anti-Semitic, not just a little, but we're really looking for the overlap of the worst of the worst, if you see what I mean. So what are those specific uh, um, support for political violence questions on the right? Do you agree that the use of force is justified to restore Donald Trump to the presidency? Do you believe that the use of force is justified to stop critical race theory being taught in schools? Why did we choose those? Well, the insurrection on January 6th is a clear example of the first. And then all the, um, the, the really quite uh, aggressive, violent um, uh, language that you see at school board meetings is why the second. So these are directly relevant to our politics today. Then also on the left, we look at, do you agree that the use of force is justified to stop police brutality against minorities? Well, that's the meant to capture this attitudinal sentiments underneath the riot portions of the George Floyd protests. So we've done this in many, many different uh, uh, questions. So it's not just that we have like one or two. Our um, um, questionnaire, well over 100 questions. So we are really able to speak with some authority about the overlap that we're describing. And if I can just add, if it's okay, is for us trying to understand anti-Semitism, not only are what are the causes, but to what extent are you willing to take action to carry out those anti-Semitic views or to what extent do those anti-Semitic views inform what you're willing to do? And so from an ADL perspective, when we think about interventions that we can use to address anti-Semitic tropes and misinformation, to address these incidents with a goal ultimately of keeping members of the Jewish community safe. And as we've seen with anti-Semitism, rarely does it stop with members of the Jewish community. So it's actually keeping our broader society safer. So what is that tipping point? 
where does an intervention actually have an effect, a positive effect? And even in some cases, where could an intervention have a negative effect and actually not be helpful? And so, so as we think about as an organization, as an anti-hate organization that's been around for over 100 years, how do we spend our resources? What do we focus on? What types of intervention should we double down on? And what other ones perhaps maybe are not as effective? And so this information and this type of research to go the next level into it, to understanding, to unpacking anti-Semitism is really important for us as an organization moving forward. You know, we've seen this this rise in anti-Semitism. And, and in this study, you talk about that group of people condoning political violence. Professor, do you have a sense of what might be driving this? What's what's What are the factors at play here? So this study was meant to understand the overlap of those two toxic pools of attitudes. It was not designed, first and foremost, to explain sure. that overlap. So I just want to be clear because I'll have a lot of professors <laughs> getting mad at me if I overdo the causation <laughs> right, part. Right. But that said, we have some insight here because, you see, we also looked at um, the overlap with conspiracy theories. And anti-Semitism is one of the prime examples of conspiratorial thinking. So what we are seeing in our report when we look at the overlap of um, anti-Semitism and political conspiracy theories, such as uh, the 2020 election was stolen, there, there's just a whole number of them that we look at in the report, is time and time again, in fact, in every conspiracy theory we looked at, uh, there is high overlap of high anti-Semitism and the conspiratorial thinking. So there is a uh, reasonable, let's call it at least minimum hypothesis that comes out of the report that it's conspiratorial thinking that's playing a role. Um, but the truth is, as a social scientist, I have to be upfront that that is really next stage research to get at those root causes of what we are, of what we are seeing here. Well, you mentioned uh, conspiracy theories, and there's one that's clearly anti-Semitic um, that's called the Great Replacement Theory. David, can you remind folks what that is, and, and, and is that something that came up in this survey? So it did come up, uh, and the Great Replacement Theory is this idea that the United States, and although it didn't start actually in the United States, it actually started in France in the late 1800s, um, but this what has been adopted here in the U.S. is that the white population is being replaced. Things are you are being replaced as the majority. We have seen it in the in mainstream politics, and even if it has not necessarily been described by politicians or candidates as the great replacement theory, it is that, and it has become parts of national platforms of political parties here in the U.S. Incredibly problematic, incredibly xenophobic, incredibly anti-Semitic. And and just to add on that a little bit, so we saw this great replacement idea in Charlottesville when you heard the chanting, Jews will not replace us. Well, that may strike some of your listeners as odd because they'll say, well, wait a minute, aren't Jews mostly white? And so why would they be blamed for the replacement of the white population? Well, this gets into more, unfortunately, the darker corners of the great replacement theory that say, well, there's a replacement of the white population occurring and the power, the engine that's doing that are Jews. And so that's, go ahead. Oh, no, no, sorry. I think, and it's, and it's driven even more by this idea that something that is rightfully yours is being taken away. And so when we see, as the professor said, 
whether it be Charlottesville, whether it be anti-immigrant protests, we see this idea, this notion that has been built and embedded into white supremacist ideology and white supremacist actions. And and what you see is they are taking something that is yours away. And therefore you not only need to be engaged, but you need to be activated in some way. And that activation has played out in very dangerous ways on the streets of America. Uh, David, these results come at a time when Jews in the U.S. and beyond are facing a rising tide of anti-Semitism since the Hamas attack on Israel on October 7th and Israel's declaration of war. How concerned are you that anti-Semitism could continue to worsen in the coming weeks and, and months? I think it will. Right? I, don't, I don't think it's even a question of it. Right? Um, in some cases, you can make the case that those ideas or that hate already existed, and this provides an avenue through which people can express that anti-Semitism in some way. Um, we've seen it in anti-Israel pro-Hamas protests that have occurred. I mean, here in the city of Chicago, you you can see it. Your listeners can't, but I'm sitting here looking at a picture of a protest sign that speaks out with multiple anti-Semitic tropes at a march that was just down Madison two days ago with dollar bills shaped like a snake and blood dripping all over the sign, part of the blood libel and this other anti-Semitic trope that, you know, the Jews are greedy. And so those types of um, these marches are allowing anti-Semitism to manifest itself. And in fact, it's not even about Israel anymore. It really is about anti-Semitism. We see posts on social media that say Jews should have been exterminated during uh, the Holocaust. We saw that yes, just yesterday, actually, with an employee from the comptroller's office. And so this is the type of vitriol and hatred. And so when this type of anti-Semitism is allowed to manifest itself, whether it be on the streets of Chicago, on social media, it's no surprise that someone's going to take action or decide to take matters into their own hands and carry out an act of anti-Semitism. We should mention some Palestinian Americans will say that uh, they go out to protests in, uh, say, the loop to support the Palestinian people, not to support anti-Semitism. Um, you but, know, but I want to stop you there, though. That's not. While there may be some who say that, those are not the chants that we hear in these protests. The chants in Chicago that say, "Get the Zion, push, uh, get the Zionists out of our town." Zionist in this particular case is not Israel. Zionist is Jew. That is what it means in these in these protests. When you see signs that have a picture of a Hamas glider coming down, which is what was used to attack the music festival in Israel and murder more than 300 innocent Israelis, that is not about the Palestinian people. That is about killing Jews. And so that's not what we're actually seeing on the ground. And also to build on what David's saying, and let me just give um, an analogy from another part of political violence. Many of your listeners will know that Paul Pelosi was attacked. He was attacked from the right by somebody who's a Trump supporter who wanted to actually uh, harm, if not assassinate, the Speaker Nancy Pelosi. Many of your listeners will also know that many Republicans laughed at that. 
they made jokes about that. Similar to the to the paraglider, they made uh, literally memes and jokes about that. And there have been a whole series of right-wing attacks since then. And many people will say, well, isn't that sad that there's all these Republicans who are silent about that attack or even laughing about it? Well, that's what David's doing and talking about on this issue as well. What you're seeing here is it's not about whether uh, protests to support Palestine is legitimate. It's absolutely legitimate. Um, and it's very important that um, there, we move toward a pathway for a uh, two-state solution and a state for Palestine. What I would, what, what's important, however, is that we don't be silent when that goes that next step to support for violence, and that is awfully easy to do if you support um, from you know the cause on your side and say, well, that's not me. I'm not the one saying that. Well, no, but there are people there who are being silent. And what we need to do is do we need to support the political cause but condemn the violence at the same time. You know, I want to bring us back to the, the study here and um, the results, which are fascinating. They come at a time where, you know, we're heading into the 2024 election season what does this poll tell us about how resilient our democracy and democratic norms are in this moment? Look, I mean, we're sitting here talking right now, I believe, as there's another vote going on for the Speaker mm -hmm. of the House. I mean, literally in this very moment. And so there's incredible dysfunction in government. That I don't, I don't think <laughs> that we're going to get much disagreement on that, at least right now. But we had seen going into the 2020 election polls that were showing concerns from Americans that we're concerned about political violence, right? Remember, were we in, in the heart of COVID, you had armed individuals who were protesting and storming uh, state capitals around the country, right? You have had situations here uh, where you have armed individuals who are standing outside of ballot boxes in Maricopa County. So this political violence was there before, the, the, the concerns about political violence were there before, we saw it play out in 2020, and we see it playing out even more. And in the rhetoric that we hear, I mean, we still have somebody who is running to be Speaker of the House who was not willing to say on the record yesterday in front of a bunch of television cameras that the 2020 election results were legitimate. Yeah, the, that Speaker vote is, is now over. No House Speaker there you was go, chosen. Right? So, so, but, like, but you have these situations where you have national political leaders that are still driving and supporting conspiracies. Right. And those conspiracies, by the way, are what leads to political violence. You know, speaking of those uh, those folks, the leading candidate on the Republican side, former President Donald Trump, will soon be on trial for his alleged role in the January 6th attack on, on the Capitol. Um, an act of political violence driven by conspiracy theories. Does this survey shed any more light on what's motivating people to, uh, to take part in these things? So this specific survey dovetails with the quarterly surveys that we do at the University of Chicago Project on Security and Threats. The results are published every quarter in The Guardian, um, major international newspaper, and we have been tracking the rise, ebb, and flow of support for political violence in the United States for two years. Listeners can go to our website to see the most recent uh, surveys. And what you're seeing is with the Trump indictments starting in the spring, there has been a surge of radical violence support 
for Donald Trump. Um, and what you are seeing is that essentially Trump is radicalizing actually both the right and the left in this uh, in our country, because there's also a rise of support, a violent opposition to Donald Trump being president. So what we have in the country now is not a majority, but we have a minority that is actually vocally supporting violence. It's about 10, 15 percent, not a not a majority, but it's important. And this is why President Biden has been giving speeches specifically to call for bipartisan opposition to political violence. And I believe that we need more leaders to do that. We need the leaders um, who are actually quite rightfully protesting in favor of Palestinian rights to also be condemning violence at the same time. We need to make it a blanket rule and follow President Biden's lead that this needs to be a bipartisan position because political violence is not who we are as Americans. It's not moral. It's wrong. But we do need to now stand up in ways that we really haven't really needed to for quite some time. We've been speaking with Professor Robert Pape from the University of Chicago and David Goldenberg from the Anti-Defamation League. You can find the report we've been talking about, uh, Anti-Semitism and Support for Political Violence, on the ADL website. That episode of The Reset Podcast was produced and edited by Daniel Tucker along with Ethan Schwab. Just because this pod is over doesn't mean our conversation is. We love to hear your tips, suggestions, and feedback. And there are lots of ways to get in touch. You can send us a message at reset at wbez.org. Leave us a voicemail at 888-915-9945. And sign up for our newsletter at wbez.org slash reset news. That's all for now. Thank you so much for listening. Sasha Ann Simons is back today. If you need a break from the news, WBEZ's Nerd App Podcast is here for you. Our show is all about delight. We laugh about what's happening in pop culture and feature thoughtful interviews with fascinating people. We even have a monthly book club. Listen to Nerd App wherever you get your podcasts.